Before Suzanne comes to read the morning scripture, I wanted to provide some context for us to understand um, what is going on in when we hear about the story of David that we encounter here. Here's some preliminary things that sort of familiarize us or remind us of anecdotes or stories we've heard related to David. God had sent Samuel, his servant, to the house of Jesse to anoint a successor to Israel's first king, Saul. Saul was still ruling, but he wanted to have in place who would succeed Saul. So he goes to the house of Jesse, and Jesse has eight sons, seven of which are present, and and Samuel immediately sees a few of them who are large in stature and and warrior-like who would make a model king much like Saul was, and he starts to think, oh, this must be the one. But then he hears God say, don't look on the outward appearance. I'm looking on the heart. And so he goes through all seven sons, and none of them God confirms is the right one. So he says, is this all you have to Jesse? Like seven's not enough. Um, And he says, no, there's one more. He's in the Judean hills watching the sheep. He's a shepherd. So they call for David, and sure enough, he's the one. While still an adolescent, David accepts the challenge to stand up against the Philistine army's champion and giant Goliath. He's outmatched in nearly every way except one, and that's the area that made Goliath most vulnerable, and sure enough, with a slingshot, David is able to conquer him. David is then invited into Saul's court where he makes use of his musical skills and is able to soothe a lot of uh, Saul's manic depressive episodes. But eventually he falls out of favor with the unstable king and for nearly a decade during his 20s, David lives as a fugitive in the wilderness He then also forms a band of soldiers who not only flee Saul's pursuit, but also defeat the Philistines in many battles. Then finally, at age 30, he is made king of the tribe of Judah and rules it from the village of Hebron for seven years. At that time, members of the tribes of the north come and say, we want you to be our king as well. And now David becomes king of all of Israel, and he moves to Jerusalem to make it his capital. He also moves the tabernacle with the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. But once he does, he's not satisfied with the arrangement. And so he proposes to Nathan, God's prophet, that he build God a more permanent sanctuary. And this is where our reading begins. From this reading, we're going to hear how God teaches David a lesson. And that, by the way, is my sermon title, not who shall be king. The title should have read um, David's Covenant Lesson, colon, it's not all about me. And I just mentioned that in case it might apply to some of us. Um, We like to think some of it at least is about us, but We have something to learn from this reading um, about David. Also, God is going to make a new covenant with David regarding his family and the succession 
of those who come after him. And this covenant includes the hope of a Messiah, which is fulfilled, we know, in Jesus. So from John's gospel, we'll hear the story of Jesus being accused by the Jewish authorities of treason. And now he stands before the Roman governor Pilate, who asks him directly, are you the king of the Jews? And we'll hear how he answers that. Let us turn our attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord to Nathan saying, came to Nathan saying, Tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth, and I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore, as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. In response, David prays, Sovereign Lord, you are God. Your covenant is trustworthy, and you have promised these good things to your servant. Now, be pleased to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue forever in your sight. For you, Sovereign Lord, have spoken, and with your blessing, the house of your servant will be blessed forever. Moving on to John. Accused of treason, Jesus is brought before Rome's governor, Pontius Pilate, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus replied, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of the truth listens to me. The word of the Lord. Indeed. I remember a story of a man who wanted to play a game of pickup basketball with some of the neighborhood kids, and so he 
Um, he assumed his place as guard. He was probably in his 40s or 50s at the time. And the young guy that he was playing against was still in, in his teens or 20s. And he managed to, to do a maneuver where he did a crossover and, and did a fadeaway jump shot and it went in. And the guy guarding him gave him the ball back to, for the next play and said to him, man, you must have been something in your prime. <laughs> like, instead of a compliment, like, that was a good shot, it was like a, a complete um, dismissal of his capabilities that he's, he's a has-been. And I thought that was terrible until after the service, I guess I provoked a memory of someone in our church. This woman told me that she was having her nails done, and the woman looked up at her and said, wow, you must have been beautiful when you were younger. <laughs> okay, I think we need classes in how to compliment one another. Um, but in this story, David is in the prime of his life. He had defeated the opposition. He had defeated the Edomites, the the uh, Moabites, the Ammonites, the Jebusites, and the Philistines. And he put them all in his, on their place. He had secured the borders of Israel to the point that it resembled what was promised to Abraham to occupy the land. And, um, and he's united all the tribes as one nation. And so in every way, David has settled um, and prepared Israel to experience a period of, of, of glory and grandeur as a monarchy. He has established Jerusalem as his capital. Now crowned and enthroned, he's built himself a palace, a solid, secure place to call home. And that means something to someone who for almost a decade lived in the wilderness as homeless. To have a home and a palace that says, um, from here I rule. Um, now feeling a sense of gratitude and wanting to honor God, who had done so much for him, he decides to do something for God. He says, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the Ark of the Covenant dwells in a tent, meaning the tabernacle, the tent that housed uh, the very presence of God. And so by this comparison, David, in effect, is saying, my house is better than God's, and that shouldn't be so. And now with his position of strength, he thinks he can do something about that. He's going to do something good. He wants to build a temple, a permanent house of worship for God. And so he says to Nathan what his plans are. And Nathan at first, if you read the whole passage of chapter 7, Nathan says, the Lord is with you. Do what you want. But that night, God speaks to Nathan and says, no, 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 no. In a dream, he says to him, go back to David and revoke the building permit. It's not going to happen. And in effect, Nathan has to tell David, uh, speaking for God, you want to build me a house? Forget it. I'm going to build you a house. Now, that all sounds kind of back and forth, but the real, the real um, nuance here is, is the play on the word house in Hebrew, bayet. It has three different kinds of meanings. 
and they're all represented here. The first, it can mean a structure in which a person lives, the house that David lived, a house. It can also be a structure of deity, where deity is worshipped, meaning a temple, same word. Or it can also refer to a person's household, the people who occupy that house, and all the, um, the descendants of that house. And when that person's a king, it refers to the royal lineage of that person. So David wants to build a house for God, but God says, no, I'm going to build your family. I'm going to build your house, your name that will continue. Here's how Eugene Peterson suggests what God was saying to David. The kingdom that I'm shaping here isn't what you do for me, but what I do through you. I'm doing the building here, not you. Rather than everyone being caught up in what you're doing, I want them to pay attention to what I'm doing. If there's any building to be done, I'll be the one doing it. I've been working with you since your shepherd days, building a kingdom, a place where salvation and justice and peace can be realized. That's why you're here, to give visibility and representation to what I'm doing, not to call attention to who you are. We've just had one failure like that in Saul. We're not going to have another. So you can see why God is telling David, nice idea, but bad timing. You're not the one. It's not all about you, David. There, there are times, I think, that we can readily identify with David in this respect. Out of gratitude for what God's done for us or prompted by some magnanimous spiritual feeling we might have, we want to do something significant for God. Um, and despite our good intentions, such an act could be a distraction from what God is actually wanting to do for us. Or we might be mistaken into thinking by doing God a favor, in turn, God will will owe us a favor. I think the press calls that quid pro quo. Um, I, I, I've heard that recently. And, and doing such good for God, we may become pleased with ourselves and receive the applause and commendation from others and then lose our sense of dependence on God and our ever-pressing, desperate need for God's grace. So we don't want to get ahead of God with our plans and with our doing of good or thinking we've done something significant for God before we have fully embraced what God is doing and wants to do for us. Now, lest we think David's motive is the problem here, we need to be reminded of the kind of king that he was. Our narrator likes to compare David to Saul. Saul was regal in stature, uh, but David was slight of build. And unlike Saul, David did not become proud or cruel, nor did he depersonalize his subjects into mere roles or functions, nor did he come to view God as some adjunct to his sovereign place on the throne. You could say that Saul was the people's choice for king. And David was God's choice for a king. 
I like how Old Testament scholar Sandra Richter, who is the author of the Epic of Eden, some of you have either read that book or seen her video series, she suggests the meaning behind this famous passage that describes David as a man after God's own heart. We've all heard that phrase. The actual meaning may not be referring to David possessing some unparalleled affection for God, which we see resonate throughout the Psalms. Nor does it refer to David's will being closely aligned with that of God's will. But rather, Richter suggests what it means is that David was a king of God's choosing. In other words, someone whose loyalty God could count on. That is what it means that he was a man after God's own heart. He was someone whom God could count on. So full of confidence for what he's going to do for God, David now must hear from Nathan and hear this litany, a rehearsal of what God has done, is doing, what God will do in and through David. He's not going to be the one to build God's house. His son, who's yet to be born, Solomon, will. And then in that same passage, you think it's talking about Solomon, but in actuality, it projects much further beyond David, beyond Solomon, beyond the dynasty of that thousand-year monarchy, well into the future. And mentions another son of David, who will become God's anointed one and is the true and only faithful covenant keeper. All of us fail in our attempts to keep the covenant, but this one is faithful. He will bring about the salvation of Israel and the whole world. And we know it to be Jesus as God's anointed one. That's what to be made ruler means, is to be anointed. That's what Christ means. Jesus is his name, Christ is his title. Jesus, the anointed one of God, our king. Because he himself is eternal, because God raises him from the dead, his kingdom will know no end. It will be forever. When you read the Gospel of Matthew, you will read a genealogy, and we, we get bored with those so-and-so begat so-and-so and the lineage and all that sort of thing, but... When you look at Matthew, it's astonishing. He talks about, you would think he's going to talk about how prominent Abraham is and that this one is a descendant of Abraham, but no, he's a descendant of David. And Matthew tells us 12 generations leading up to David, 12 generations, is it 12 or 14? One of you biblical scholars will know, but it's one of those. It's either 12 or 14. Leading up to David and then 12 or 14 after David comes Jesus. And we will never fully understand who Jesus is and what he means to God if we don't understand the story of David and the covenant God makes with David and how Jesus is the fulfillment of that covenant. Upon hearing God's plan, David's response is one of surrender and submission. We didn't read this part of the passage, but the narrator says that David sat before the Lord. We could add the word silent. He sat quiet before the Lord. He reverently and deliberately placed himself 
before God, trading his plans for God's plans. How many of us are willing to do that when we stand corrected? To really hear what the correction is and to, and to take it in. Similar to the way he brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem by leading the processional with great fanfare, what David was demonstrating by sitting down before God was that he was signaling God is in charge, not me. I've learned my lesson. It's not all about me. So he takes a position of representing and giving witness to God's rule as sovereign over all of Israel. David is king, but God is the true king. God is the true ruler of each and every one of us. It is this dynamic of David's role as king that points to his descendants and particularly the future king of God's choosing who will usher in God's presence and establish God's rule forever. One of the most important things we say when we pray the Lord's Prayer is, Thy kingdom come. We are saying, Jesus reigns. God is in charge. Now, as good as a king as David is, he is not at the same time. He is, he is at the same time far from ideal as a human being. He may have authored great psalms of praise to God, but he is also one who commits adultery and murder. If his role as king represents God, then his own personal story represents you and me and our human condition as one of both glory and agony, of one of promise and disappointment. The narrator of David's story shows the presence and purposes of God being worked out in human history with such flawed people as David and you and me. And I think this is precisely the story of living in covenant. It doesn't mean that everything's going to be uh, perfect from this day forward. It means that we can count on each other. We can count on God to be loving and forgiving. That whatever our failure, whatever um, disappointment, God can make good come of it. It's a story that keeps us in touch with our humanity, all of which has to do with God, because no part of human history isn't God-created, God-conditioned, God-present. Just as this story connects us to God, it also reminds us of the reality of evil in our lives that would seek to destroy and weaken us. It is in this way that the narrator provides a context for understanding the complexities and vulnerabilities tied up with, with living in covenant relationship. And yet it shows how God works through such covenants to create, direct, to judge, to save, to call us into account and to bless us. But most importantly of all, to love us. God enters into covenant and gives us dignity to share in his work, to live lives of faith, and to enact um, God's great love. 
not only for us in understanding how much we're loved, but to offer that love to one another. May it be so. Amen.